Part Four of The Lost Island of Atlantis by E. T. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Lost Island of Atlantis, Part Four. The operations of Dr. Morey in the North Atlantic Ocean afford a remarkable confirmation of the hypothesis adduced. His deep sea soundings show that a raised tract, suggestive of a submerged island, which he calls the middle ground, lies midway in the Atlantic basin, extending from the latitude of Cuba to beyond Newfoundland, and having a breadth of from twenty to thirty degrees of longitude. The soundings of this plateau, which is of clay and sand, are from one thousand to eighteen hundred fathoms. All round, immediately beyond its outline, the sea goes plumb down another thousand fathoms, and beyond this lower terrace there is another descent, where the Atlantic attains its greatest depth of about five thousand fathoms. Neither is it necessary, if the existence of such an island be conceded, that the age of the human race be carried back to the period of the Miocene the island possibly did not sink beneath the waters before the close of the pleistocene or drift period the various terraces round the highest level plainly point to an area of subsidence there were sinking at distant intervals with long ages of rest between it was not probably till the end of the pliocene that the island was reduced to its most limited extent and subsequently became the abode of man the old legends retained by Plato speak of terrible convulsions of nature amid which Atlantis sank. Can we suppose these narratives to retain a far distant echo of the throes and disturbances which preceded the modern geologic period? Without doubt, if we review in thought the many ages that must have rolled away since the period of the Pleistocene, it may appear startling to conceive of man as then existing and to compute the duration of our species on earth by thousands of centuries instead of the few thousand years usually assigned to it but there are many considerations which would incline to the belief that the antiquity of our race has been greatly underrated the whole tendency of contemporary scientific inquiry sets in that direction and year by year, as book after book appears, and discovery after discovery is made, the genesis of man recedes, and the date of his appearance seems further and further withdrawn. Worthy of note, too, is the great number of recorded changes and convulsions of the earth's surface, too numerous and too considerable to be comprised within the received historic period. Nor are these given as mere myths by authors little deserving of credit, but as historic events, handed down by tradition and placed on record by writers not wholly devoid of critical acumen as strabo herodotus and others strong and indelible must have been the memory of the disturbances wherein the agencies of water floods earthquakes and subterraneous upheaving seem to have been alternately employed it has been the parent of many myths wherein superhuman beings have been represented in deadly warfare the Samothracian priests had a tradition that the Pontus was originally a closed crater, and that afterwards, overflowing, it formed the Hellespont as its outlet and separated Europe from Africa. That these two were at first one continent seems supported by the great similarity of the floras on the northern and southern shores of the Mediterranean. Crete is said to have formerly been part of the mainland, and in no other way does it seem possible to account for the presence of its mountain peaks of the Capra Sinaica, 
whose special habitat is between Sinai and Nubia. The island of Rhodes arose from the sea and was subsequently inundated. Kos and Niceros, originally one, were rent asunder and formed two islands. The valleys of the Thessalian Pineus and the Laconian Eurotas were dried up. Cyprus, Euboea, and Sicily were violently separated from the mainland. Mountain tops were cast down as that of Taygetus. Earthquakes overthrew cities as Sparta and Sicyon, or covered them with the waves as the Boeotian Arni and Media, and the Achaean Hellas and Bura. Islands were torn asunder as Theresia and Thera, or wholly submerged as Crissi near Lemnus. Capus as Atalanta were changed into islands, while others again were thrown up from the depths of the sea as Hiera and Thea. Rivers were dried up as the Boeotian Helios, or volcanoes suddenly blazed forth as on Lemnus, the Arcadian Lycium, and Methoni in Argolis. The changes of the Caspian had given rise to the learned monograph of Cephalides, the Historia Maris Caspi. Scarcely two ancient writers agreeing as to its extent, form, or position, or as to the names, number, and course of the rivers which it receives. Nor are Oriental authorities wanting. The Chevalier von Norov, in a treatise published at St. Petersburg in 1854, has collected on the subject some curious extracts from Arab writers on the 10th century. One of these, Masudi, A.D., 943-944, speaks of an old tradition that a bridge formerly existed at the strait between Spain and Africa, constructed of stones and bricks, over which passed camels and beasts of burden. Under this bridge flowed the ocean tide, divided into small canals. The water of the Mediterranean, however, rose gradually, and in course of time submerged one tract after another. Finally, the water flowed over the bridge, which, however, could be seen below the surface long after by seafaring men. Another similar tradition, preserved by El Biruni, is that in old time, a damp, brackish soil, covered with rank vegetation, extended between Egypt and Constantinople. Neither again, according to the ordinary chronology, would there seem to be space enough for the evolution of all the multitudinous mythi of antiquity. These mythi are the deposit of long ages of a people's history. It can be only after a great lapse of time that the suspended matter of a mythos, be it historic, religious, or physical, becomes at length precipitated, or rather slowly deposited, and assumes a concrete and palpable form. There may be those who think that the fossils, the cave relics, and other signs and evidences of man's primeval occupancy should be yet more numerous to warrant any certain conclusion. To these it may be replied that the ocean bed is beyond the grasp of the geologists, that scarcely a tenth of the whole dry land has been surveyed, and of that tenth but a small part belongs to the tertiary or post-tertiary age. And what, indeed, can be more reasonable than to suppose that when the earth was prepared for his reception, man should appear? In those primal Azoic ages, when as yet the dry land was not, and our planet rolled onward through the void, covered with a boiling sea and shrouded in vapours, so that emphatically darkness was on the face of the deep, 
then, of course, his existence would have been an impossibility. So also, during the time when those strange ganoids and placoids held their solitary sway, or later, when the dynasty of fishes was succeeded by that of reptiles, and the leas and oolite displayed their wondrous reptilian fauna. But at the close of the secondary period, there was a pause, a pause of expectancy. The crowning glory of creation, the centre of the mute prophesying of innumerable ages, man, the latest born and highest of terrestrial creatures, was about to appear. With a tertiary, a new order of things arises. It has been said that it possesses scarcely a species in common with the preceding age, that two planets would hardly differ more in their natural productions, and this break in the law of continuity is the more remarkable, as hitherto some of the newly created animals were always introduced before the older was extinguished. It was a period of rest and tranquillity, an exultant and abounding age. Creatures of a high order, the largest of the land mammalia, moved through the luxuriant herbage, or enjoyed the shady coolness of the riverside. And still, with the ever-widening dawn, the resemblance to our own world increased. The stately ruminants of the forest, the elk, the stag, and the bison appeared. The horse waited for his rider, and the steer for the yoke of the husbandman. Flowers, like our own, enamelled a thousand fields, and the lark, as now, filling the air with song, soared upward to the gates of heaven. And thus, the conditions of vitality being there, it is difficult to conceive of life itself being absent. Everything around us, the blade of grass, the drop of dew, teems with living beings. Life is enjoyed everywhere to the uttermost. There is no space lost, and not only is life present, but life advanced to the furthest degree of perfection which the supplied conditions will allow. The elements being given, the organism is the unfailing product, and the Promethean spark kindles at once into being. If human life then was possible during this period, we may rest assured that human life was there. And they, the dwellers in their island home, how lived they? What was their history? May we believe with Plato that they became prosperous, rich, powerful, were ruled by wise kings, received tribute from the neighboring islands, and had long years vouchsafed to them of peace and plenty. And finally, after sending out migratory swarms eastward, and perhaps westward, how did their island disappear? Was it submerged slowly, or did it sink suddenly in ruin? We cannot tell. All is dark and uncertain. Yet, with the onward march of science, the day may perhaps come when its historic actuality will be made plain as the fact of its geological existence. Whatever the power and greatness of the old Atlantids, all now is vanished as a dream, lost and engulfed in a barren wilderness of waters. Festivals, processions, the meetings in the marketplace, and uproar of congregated thousands, all is silent now. The ocean keeps its secret. Summer and winter, sleet and sunshine, pass over its surface, but no sound or echo comes to tell of the sleepers below. Yet here, happily, were human affections and friendships, 
and all the incidents and realities of life and when the suddenness of desolation fell upon them it must have been with no ordinary pang that these children of the morning resigned the rich blessings they enjoyed and descended into that darkness where as yet no teacher had gone before buried thus in the lava and scoria of volcanic action who can tell what subtle agencies of nature have since been at work who can say whether the infiltrated fluid charged with calcareous or siliceous earth in solution may not in the interval preceding the final submersion have lapidified these sleepers have turned them into stone like the fossils and reliquiae which form the study of the curious if so it may be that when in the oscillations of the earth's crust the island of atlantis covered with its subsequent deposits again rises to the surface some future geologist may lay bare the secrets of that last convulsion may gaze with reverence on the first-born of our race and again expose to air and sunshine the reveller with his rose wreath the hierarch with his staff and the mailed monarch with his sceptre and his crown End of part four.